Welcome to the Scottish Business Network podcast. Hello, I'm Fraser Allen. Welcome to episode 32. Ross Mickle hails from one of the great Scottish house-building dynasties, McTaggart and Mickle, which has built thousands of homes in Scotland and beyond since 1925, although its origins actually go back to Victorian times. It's also made a significant mark on the architectural and cultural landscape of Glasgow, having been responsible for building many of the much-loved tenements in the West End. I interviewed Ross in front of a live audience of business people at the Maggie Centre at St Bart's Hospital in London. And with great humour and insight, Ross explained what it's like to grow up in and then become part of such a well-established family business. He also explained why Maggie Centres mean so much to him and his family. I wonder, Ross, if we could start by you giving us a little bit of an insight into the, the history of the, the business, how it started and how it's evolved considerably since then. Well, I'll introduce myself. I'm Ross Mickle. I'm fourth generation of McTaggart Mickle. It's a family business been going since 1925. I'll introduce you to my friend. I call this the Bible. It was a book we had commissioned in, for the millennium for our 75th birthday party. And it uh, talks about the history of McTaggart Mickle alongside Scottish architecture. So whenever I get a tricky question, I may have to go look back to what Grandpa did back in the day <laughs> and refer to that. But it stays inside my desk, and I use it. This one's a new copy, because the other one's bashed a bit. But there's some uh, amazing stories. I'm not selling the book, don't worry. Uh, you can't buy them, but uh, it's just the history. When it sits there, I can look down and I think, wow, there's actually heading up now. A company that's been going strong for 90 years, 95 years. We enter our fifth year, 95th year this year. Uh, it was started back uh, in 1925 by my great-grandfather, Colonel Andrew Mickle. He teamed up with Jack McTaggart. The pair of them were Glasgow-based. Uh, my my great-grandfather was mainly into more speculative building, so into a bit of land purchase as well back in the day, whereas the McTaggarts were much more into building for rentals, so a PRS style of build. And back in 1925, uh, the Glasgow Corporation, which is now Glasgow Council, and Edinburgh Corporation were very, very much into building houses both to rent and for ownership. So the two then came together uh, to decide, well, actually, I specialise in this, Mickle specialised in building, let's bring them together. Prior to that, the pair of them did their own thing for 30, 40 years before that. Um, my side of the family, the Mickles, started as a timber importer in Linlithgow. And, uh, then moved up from that to start uh, doing a lot of, uh, for the day, very advanced off-site manufacturing things, which was for the day very, very different to what happened in 1925. Uh, and then as they kind of moved around Glasgow mainly, they realised, as I said, they've got a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, good comparables for each other to, to produce something that's different. And at that point, Glasgow especially was trying out for someone to come in and just build houses that people could actually live in. So they got together, and yeah, 95 years later, we're hopefully still yeah. doing it. Maybe not as many as they yeah. did back then, but... Uh, and so some of the, the family were in Glasgow, I believe, and you grew up in Edinburgh, so... Yes. And so what was it like growing up? Did, was, it, was it always kind of assumed from your part that you would join the family business at some point? And how did you view the business as a, as a, as a boy? What did it feel like? Well, we can go back to the Glasgow-Edinburgh split. Mm -hmm. It's quite interesting because after Colonel Andrew Mickle, he had two, well, two sons and a daughter... Uh, uh, Frank Mickle and Douglas Mickle, my grandfather, and they kind of naturally split over the 30s and 40s after the wartime into Glasgow and Edinburgh. And I, we, we have a, a joke that 
my cousin works in the company as well, so myself and Andrew Mickle uh, are currently the two Mickles in the company. He's Glasgow-based, I'm Edinburgh-based, so socially we don't really cross borders, which works very well, so we get together for work, but we don't have this competitiveness when it comes to trying to socialise in Glasgow or Edinburgh. And we've stuck to that very well, and it works very well. Uh, throughout school, um, actually before that, when uh, I think about the first time I was really experiencing Dad talk about the business, uh, was leaving school one day. We had a head office in Edinburgh at the point, and my grandfather Douglas was a very <coughs> strict man. He was. He ran the company with iron fist. It was his way or the highway. I'm going to spare you his language because it was awful. And, uh, but he still would go out every Thursday afternoon and pay every single member of staff in cash out his car window. Sometimes he only opened his window a tiny amount because he was a bit scared of them. But uh, that's, he'd do that and so he'd know the names of everybody within the business. Uh, so I went round to their office, his office one day. I must have been, I don't know, seven or eight. And the best thing about his office was a stationery cupboard. He had all the best stationery, the good old Parker pens embroidered with McTaggart Mickle, really proper old brass rulers. And myself and my sister used to go in and uh, try and distract him and read the, read the stationery cupboard. And he, he was really tight-fisted. And he'd pat us down at the door and shake our jackets. <laughs> and myself and my sister had to come up with a, a way of stealing these Parker pens. Um, and then when we went home, Dad was a completely different character. So his father, my grandpa, was really hard. My dad's much more relaxed. So we'd sit by the dinner table and there wouldn't be much chat about work. He'd maybe bring it up slightly if there was something challenging him. But we would uh, know about his work from his muddy boots in the back of the car. But then on my 14th birthday, he asked me, what do you want to do? And I kind of said, well, I want to go and drive diggers. Sounds cool. And he went, OK. I was like, well, OK. So we got 10 of my mates at 14 years old, and we got taken up to a site at Benali outside of Edinburgh. And we got given the full range, the 360 excavators, the dumper trucks. Nowadays, obviously, that ain't going to happen. I mean, health and safety would shut you down. But back then, fill your boots, boys. We spent the whole afternoon literally digging up a field, moving earth, coming back. And for the rest of that year, must be what, what we've been, senior one or two at that point. Uh, yeah, I was just the, the, the envy of every other boy in right, school, right. saying, my God, you're going to be digging holes for the rest of your life. Well, I thought that was really exciting then. I don't, think, uh, don't still dig holes. But, uh, so so in, in your mind, there was no doubt that that's what you're going to do when, when you got to kind of university age, um, planning well, to move into it? I always thought I was going to get into it at some point. But I've got an elder sister and a younger brother. My younger brother made the decision very easy for me, for his point of view. He went off skiing, and he went to finish school in America at Vermont uh, Ski Academy. And he went on to do World Cup downhill for a number of years, appeared in a number of Olympics. So he was off the, he was off the table when it came to going to the business. My sister, she joined the business, um, not straight out of uni, but not far long gone from coming out of uni. She worked in the business for six or seven years, and then she left. And... I'd always thought that I would join, but I had to, to myself go out and prove to myself that I could do other things, that, I, that mm. go and experience something else, find out what you're good at, and then hopefully that'll transpire to bring something good back to, back to the table. There was protocols set in place, and this is getting quite deep into our articles. Anyway, there was protocols set in place about how a mickle should come into the business. Previously, it was if you're a mickle and you were good enough, and if you're on the bloodline, you get you're in really, and you get onto yeah. the board. Uh, when I was about to join, all these protocols suddenly came into play. And there was <laughs> ten of them. And I was like, hang on a second, Barry didn't go through this, Andrew didn't go through this, because, well, this is what you have to do, X, Y, and Z. 
And uh, one of them, um, kind of jumping around timelines here, but one of them was the first job I had with McTaggart Mickle. I wanted to learn how to build a house. I had no experience about building houses. I was an engineer to trade through university, but civil engineering, not actually get down in the dirt and build a house. So I asked Dad, look, when I start, I want to go to site. And he said, well, if you're going to do that, you need to learn from the best we have. And one of our site managers called Paddy Malone had won countless NHBC national awards for his site management. So Dad, right, well, you're going, you're going there. I did ask, where is there? And it was in South Ayrshire. I lived in the centre of Edinburgh at that point. So commuting from Abercrombie Place to uh, Dunfoot and Ayr every day and back, I'm sure it was a test, nothing to do with the site <laughs> at all. I drove by 12 other sites to get to that one site. But I, I learned from the best. I was down in the holes. I, I made a point of actually working mm. with the guys and girls on site and learning the names, knowing that that's what... And that was a couple of years ago. That was uh, for two and a half, well, a year and a half at Ayr, then I moved to Bowness. I think it was a, only a 40-minute drive then. <laughs> it was light, light relief. It's a lot of mileage. It was, <laughs> yes. Uh, a lot of company cars went to, a lot of golfs got destroyed that year. Yeah, that was, it was and, definitely... And so before that, you, you had this, you know, going out to kind of test yourself beyond the, the, the family business. So you went, you went down south, didn't you? Yes, I, uh, after I left uni... Uh, throughout my uni career, uh, my summer job consisted of working for a marquee company. You probably all know it, Field and Lawn Marquees. It's the, the stable corner of marquee industry. And uh, through summer months, myself and my mates used to work putting up tents around the country, up in Scotland. And um, we loved it. It was great fun out in the shorts and t-shirt in the sun all summer, uh, earning quite a bit of money for a student. I left university, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And uh, Cameron Stewart, who ran Field and Lawn, I think he still does, uh, said, Ross, do you want to come and work? for us for a while. So I joined their Edinburgh operation and was a sales manager uh, for a couple of years going around the country. And then they, Field & Lawn had a large uh, expansion plan and they were moving by new marquee companies around the country. And they bought over one in London. I put my name forward to run it. And three weeks later, I arrive in London in the back of my golf with a suitcase, nowhere to stay, and a, a factory full of employees to go and to go and uh, say, hi, I'm now your new boss, <laughs> uh, which was fine with them because they were geared up for it. I wasn't, however, because I, was, I needed to get my motorbike licence because all the meetings in London, I had to do a motorbike, otherwise I'd be in a car for hours. And the first day on the motorbike, the company motorbike, I arrive at the office and the guys are loading the trucks outside and I pull up and I put a front brake on as my front wheel hits a bit of carpet that's been left and the, the front wheel skids out, I splat on the floor, slide in almost into the factory and kind of go, hiya, yes, I'm your boss. <laughs> so it was an interesting start thrown in the deep end, but I loved it. Uh, seven years I spent down here uh, with Field and Lawn. Seven years being single, having a great job, earning right. quite a bit of dosh yeah. and going to all the wild parties that we did work for. So after, I think, six years, I think my body started saying, you know what? You what, what, what were some of the things you, you felt you learned from that period? Uh, how to manage people, how to work with uh, all different different scales within an organisation. So you be you have a lot of students working throughout the summer. Yeah, you have a lot of full time guys and girls. You need to keep on the boots for the off season, but you have to be flexible. How about how to how the pay structure works? Because you can't pay the students the same as your full time guys, but maybe the students work harder. And there's a lot of give and take in the balance of if you've got three guys in a truck, they're going to talk about their own wages right. and trying okay. to then get them to understand the the way it works, uh, but having to deal with the issues with clients, if mm. the daughter, worst jobs were always doing weddings, it was just, I'd have to do a corporate event every day of my life, but a wedding, 
lovely mother-in-laws, love them to bits, uh, just going at you because everything had to be perfect. It would be perfect, but then afterwards they'd come back and say, oh, it was great, but that build-up was always really tough. Right. But then, and also working with uh, a lot of businesses in London, we did a lot of corporate work for uh, Met Police, uh, quite some scary things we learned from them about their disaster evacuation plans for London anyway. We're not, I'm not allowed to go into that, apparently. I've still signed some document back in the day. Uh, worked with a lot of the uh, big party guys for the Mobile Awards, etc. And getting to meet people at uh, Beckham's party, these type of things, it was oh, very good fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you always got to attend the parties. Well, and I enjoyed attending the nice parties. Bonus, Absolutely. Nice. So did you go straight from that into the family business, or was this something in between? And there was some, I left London, I came back up to Edinburgh, uh, I had my flat in Edinburgh, which I still had, and I thought, right, I've worked, I've come from uni, I've worked, I want a bit of downtime. Uh, I still skied a lot like my brother. I'd done a couple of coaching qualifications, so I coached the. I joined. Well, I didn't join the RAF. I was a consultant and coached the RAF ski team for a couple of seasons. Spent a couple of seasons in the team in Val d'Isère, having a great time. And then I kind of got that phone call from uh, Mum, going, uh, "Right, coming for dinner tonight." Like, Why? What are we talking about? Right, you've had your fun. Uh, when are you going to sign on the dotted line? And my dad wasn't even in the room. I don't even know if Dad knew about this conversation. And sure enough, uh, the next day I, I get the phone call from, at the time, the chairman of Mac Mix saying, Ross, I hear you're interested in working for us. I'm like, hang on a second, I'm not even <laughs> said I want to. But uh, that quickly evolved into the interview process, then all the, the I say, the protocols are put in place. But I also, I, they, they wanted me to start in November of 2006. And I pushed it back to June because I'd been given an opportunity to sail across the Atlantic to bring back a boat for a father's friend, which I did, which was kind of my one of my lifelong ambitions, did that, uh, and then kind of settled down, and that was, that was right. yeah. And then they tested you by making you drive to Ayrshire every day just to make sure yes. you were serious about the, Correct. About the job, yeah. which you obviously were. Yes. Uh, so what, after that kind of apprenticeship, if you like, what, what happened next in terms of your, your career? Um, it, was, it was a bit, after the site work, it was a bit kind of, uh, the business was starting to go through a bit of change. Uh, we, we obviously had 2008, where house building stopped. We carried on building to keep all our guys and girls employed on site. We all took a, a four-day week, worked five, but took four-day pay. And it was a big kind of wake-up call for our industry and ourselves, and especially because we, at that point, had 250 people working for us, and we didn't want to lose any of them because all, we all, it's a family company. We feel we have responsibilities for them and their families. Uh, so there was a lot of uh, kind of toing and froing as what everyone was doing and reorganising. At the same time, we just we just purchased a timber frame company, a timber frame manufacturing company, uh, a company called Kelvin Holmes went into administration, and their timber factory came uh, uh, came available. We were looking to move into off-site manufacture because one one guy or girl laying brick on top of another has been going on for four thousand years and it's never changed. It's just that, and it, there's only a set number you can lay a day. So an off-site manufacturer, you speed up your process, you bring your build, your build time of a house from 30 weeks down to 12 weeks, which makes a huge difference. So we opened a factory up. I went in to run that uh, for a number of years. And then we started looking uh, to sell our kits externally to like some Miller, Persimmon, these guys. So worked in there for three or four years. Uh, again, I think it was a test. I really do. And I uh, really enjoyable. But then uh, we... I, then at that point is when I moved into the office about five or six years later and, and got onto the, the Holmes board and then progressed to the group board where I am now. Right. And you, you've been involved in a huge amount of diversification 
uh, following that kind of yes the thinking behind, behind. Uh, I, I don't want to upset anybody here but uh, it was uh, regulatory driven from a certain Scottish government um, we felt that we had all our eggs in one basket we were we've been Scottish house builders for seven well 95 years and it, regulations were getting tougher we are, weren't a PLC we weren't building 3,000 units a year we're building 250 300 tops so we didn't have the volume behind us so we kind of looked at them, look we can carry on trying to compete uh, a bit of background, when a PLC gets their checkbook out to buy land, they get their checkbook out to buy land. They go and spend 20, 30 million quid on a bit of land for 600 units. We can't do that, we can't compete with that, so we needed to look what else we're good at. Uh, we're very good at house building, and at that time, they helped to buy in Scotland for the, for the lesser, uh, the, for the 180, 200,000 pound mark was coming to an end. So the government was stopping help to buy, whereas down south, the UK government was pumping more money into it and up to £600,000 helped to buy. So we, we had a lot of land deals happening down in England, and we thought, well, let's take the best of those bits of land and start building. So we opened up an office in Cheltenham, and we now have five sites open around the Oxford area. Uh, and that kind of thought, well, let's just do what we do, but do it somewhere else. So, so alongside that, we've got a very large portfolio of rental properties in Edinburgh. We own, I don't know, 350-odd. And we've been buying some units in London down by New Cross Gate uh, and doing the same thing just down here. Just again, protecting ourselves geographically. And we've also had some other opportunities with our old McTaggart buddies. We've teamed back up with them after they left the company in 1938. And uh, just they went separate ways. And myself and Andrew met up with Sir John McTaggart well, about two years ago. And we're doing some deals in New York with them and their sister company there. So it's, right. it's bringing, bringing that whole circle right. back together, you, which you know, you've, been quite you've mentioned this yeah. Bible, and I believe you, you, you dip into it's not just a, something to put on the shelf, it has a practical purpose sometimes. It does, it, may, uh, it makes you go to sleepies at night. It's a really <laughs> tough read. But uh, no, there's some interesting anecdotes that Grandpa used to do when he was arguing with the Edinburgh Corporation about uh, building. Three and a half thousand new homes in Edinburgh, and all the planning, everything was done, and they got dragged into the final meeting. And there's a transcript at the back of this book, and it's the actual wording in the, in the oldie English proper gentleman language about the argument over the Edinburgh Corporation saying, Douglas, you need to tell me where you're getting your bricklayers from. And my grandma's like, Why do I need to tell you where I get my bricklayers from? And this argument back and forth for a good ten minutes, and saying, I'm not telling you, you need to tell us. And eventually, another of the Edinburgh Corporation guys stepped in and said, look, we don't mind as long as they're not Irish. <laughs> we're going, OK. And Douglas then kept, his, kept down the straight and narrow, I can't tell you where we're coming from. And eventually, they agreed to disagree. And funnily enough, it was Irish bricklayers who came across the building. But that was, it's just, a, it makes little anecdotes very amusing to me yeah, yeah. to be able to look back. Uh, I think you said you've, you've sometimes had a problem and you, you kind of dipped in here and found exactly the same thing happening you know, 50 years previously and the solutions often in the past. Yes, there is. It, it does tell us. Uh, also, it explains there's a lot about family, and I've mentioned it mm. several times, that we truly believe that the family business is more than just the Mickle family within it. Um, our CEO of group started off as an apprentice painter for us when he was 16. He's now the CEO of our group. Uh, we have intergenerational families working in, our, in the company, we have a bricklaying squad in our Dalkeith site outside Edinburgh. 
Uh, it's got a grandfather, a father and a son in the same Brickling squad. We have uh, clients who've bought houses of ours in the same street of generations. Uh, so I don't know whether it's something we put in the water or whatever it is in the sales <coughs> office, but this whole family kind of will wrap our arms around you and look after you does mm, matter. Right. And we and, and that's one of the reasons we don't, when we were looking to diversify, we didn't just want to expand and just do more houses because then we'd lose that touchy-feely, knowing the client's name, etc., mm -hmm. knowing everyone on site. And it would just become a, almost an anonymous, not a PLC, but just that, not what we believe in. So mm. that's why we're doing a lot of other things to, our, to what we want to do. Right. And we don't have to keep a city happy. We don't have to report to uh, the share price, etc. We have... A, we have a number of shareholders, which I've got to say, going to I'm fourth generation. The fifth generation, when they're all growing up, there's a lot of them. Well, it's going to be interesting <laughs> how that's going to bed in. Right, right. Uh, but uh, we've we've gone from the third to fourth fairly seamlessly. Mm. Uh, a lot of work's gone into that. Uh, I think we're now at 24 shareholders at the moment. Mm. But the next generation, that's why there's only, what, 0.1% of family companies ever last to the fifth generation, because well, yeah, we have such a spread yeah. that suddenly... If you've only got a thousand shares or a small percentage, what's your interest in it? So and I know there's at least one family business here, possibly more than it, and others may be listening to this. So, any advice for people trying to build a, a family business that's going to be sustainable over a period of time? Communicate from everybody, every, every single person. I, from my dad's point, when we sat around some uh, Sunday roast dinner tables, he would, I said earlier we wouldn't talk much about business, but he'd drop little hints and he'd say, oh, we need to go and see Auntie Eileen. Oh, who? And why? And we'd end up getting in the car and driving to Helensborough or somewhere and going and spending an afternoon with someone I'd no idea who she was, but she was another shareholder. And Dad wanted to kind of uh, go and say hi and make sure everyone was uh, kept in the loop. Uh, we hold three shareholder forums a year and our AGM. So we, we um, myself and Andrew, stand up and present our ideas of what we want to do with the company. Uh, our CEO will do a presentation of how we've done. And we just, we are very open, as I am here doing just now. We, we tell people what we're doing because the more they know, the more we can take them on the journey, hopefully. Yeah. And you, you have two children as well? I have three they? children. Three children, sorry. Yes. Uh, are you hoping they will follow into the business as well? Uh, they're two, four and six, so they've got a long way to go. Uh, and they've got lots of elder uh, cousins. Are they playing with toy cranes and stuff? Uh, Ailey, no, Henry, my, my middle son, he's great with Lego and loves <laughs> sand pits and loves everything four-year-old boys love to do, uh, annoyed his sisters mainly. But uh, I will, I, like my dad, I don't think I'll force them into it. I'll give them mm. the option saying, look, this is here, this is what we do. And one of the reasons we are diversifying into different fields, we've got nine divisions now. We do house building, uh, land purchase, commercial property deals, uh, well, we've got... Um, international investments, uh, investment fund. So there's a lot of things that are nothing to do with house building, and that's what we tried to set up. So if my son or my sister's sons or whoever the fifth generation might be into IT or might mm -hmm. be into something else, we might have that opportunity somewhere else. Not in, You mm -hmm. don't have to be a central belt house builder to join the company. Mm -hmm. So I think that side of it is going to be very tricky to carry on as it is currently. Right. So right. we need to diversify out to give that opportunity. The business has, has clearly gone through several cycles of the, the, the property market, boom and bust, and very, very difficult period a few <coughs> years ago. Um, and, and there's so much uncertainty, Brexit possible, mm. yeah. indie referendum, who, who knows what could happen in the next two years. How do, how do you prepare the business for those eventualities, whatever they may be? 
Our CEO has a great analogy for house buying. It's house building, house buying is a confidence market. If the, if the papers are confident, the market's confident, and people are confident around the dining tables, they will spend the biggest outlay of their life there and then pretty quickly. If they want to move, a lot of people get a decision on a Sunday afternoon and they go, actually, we feel good, we get some money, the banks are lending, and the, it progresses really quickly. Every time we have another bloody referendum or something that puts a break in it, it's this four, six weeks before and four, six weeks afterwards of non-activity, which is fine, but then our, cost, our work in progress cost goes up, our stockhouse numbers go up, and then we have this massive rush for everyone wanting in by Christmas or by a certain date. So uh, we just have to manage it. We're fortunate we have our own workforce, so we can move people around. So if we have got a site which is, we know there's a lot of stuff coming up to move in, we can move people very easily. If we subcontracted a lot, we might find that much more challenging. Um, what, uh, it's the top topic of our board meetings generally is the, the, the market. You look at the right. papers and you say, well, actually, if there's a bit of confidence, and even down to local, local areas, uh, Edinburgh still has been really strong. Uh, we've, had, uh, out, we've got a huge site in Miller Hill, the southeast wedge, which is um, Shawfair, uh, area of Edinburgh. And we own all that land in a JV with the Clue properties. And that's been going really well. Mm -hmm. Yet we come to some of the sites in Ayrshire, which have been going really slowly. Yet there's, there's the, same, the same build, the same quality, etc. It's just, I think, some, there's a lot of uh, local variation as well. Um, so it's tough. And until whatever happens, I don't want to mention Brexit, but until whatever happens, happens. Uh, everyone's still going to be uncertain. Right. And yeah. uncertainty leads people not buying houses. And that still is our main source of income. Although we are diversifying, still 70% of our income comes from home sales. So we still have to keep a good <coughs> eye on it. Sure. <coughs> and so from those first days in the business when you're driving through to, through to Ayrshire, um, what are some of the key lessons you think you've, you've learned about the business since then? I said, uh, communicate, bring people along with you. Uh, we've restructured the business recently. We used to just have our homes board, and that was the main board that ran the company. Uh, a number of years ago, as we diversified out, we felt that the homes board specialist in building houses, but really didn't know a hell of a lot about investing in a, a company somewhere else. So we created our group board structure. So we have a group board, which myself and Andrew uh, sit on, we have a non-exec chairman, Alan Hartley, ex-KPMG tax guy, really nice guy. Uh, we have a CEO and an FD. And that group board sits above now two operational boards, one being the Homes Board that does all our construction, so that's uh, contracts, timber systems, English homes, Scottish homes. And then we have our investment board, which is a new board we've created, which we brought some external expertise into, and that covers all our investment uh, portfolio and our PRS portfolio. And what I've learned is I'm not the best at everything by far. Um, if someone's get more experienced people in to run it for you, if you can, if you can set it up that way and, and put the experience where they should be, then it goes a lot smoother. So now we've done this. Uh, it's become... Uh, it's, we, myself and Andrew get to look a lot more at the long-term plans for mm -hmm. the company and the more the other issues with shareholders, etc. How do we deal with that? And that's what we're concentrating on the moment and let the operational boards do what they need to do to produce the goods that we do. Right. 
and outside the business, you've always got a bit of a taste for adrenaline sports, what with the skiing and then interested in motor racing. And I know there's somebody in the audience here who's actually, Lance's son was actually struck. By Ross in a, it was some incident on a racetrack, I believe. So I have to be careful how I word this. So you enjoyed the, the racing, but unfortunately you can't, you can't do that yet. Well, no, I don't, I, don't, I don't race at the moment. I intend yeah. to get back to that. Right. Uh, several, several accidents. I was speaking to Lance earlier on. We were talking about one crash. I didn't know he was talking about the crash at Knock Hill or the one down at Donington <laughs> or the one at Silverstone. I don't know. So... Uh, Yes, I've had my fair share of knocks, but the worst one was at Donington when my wife was uh, eight and a half months pregnant with her first child, and I was selfishly racing at Donington, and I got clipped in a barrel rolled about 120, and my roll cage crushed in onto my head. And I always text my wife after a race, or if I do something, a stupid sport, I always text her, and I didn't, obviously, because I was whisked off to hospital. And uh, where I was, there was no one really there. The, my, the guy who ran my race car, good friend of mine, he was there, but... The hospital weren't telling him what was wrong or what was happening. So one of my mates who lives in Wales found out about it. He got in his car to drive up to see if it was okay. And eventually the message got back to my wife, who at this point was obviously panicking massively that uh, I, was, I was alive and I just had a, a bad concussion and I wasn't broken in any way. Uh, but yeah, the conversation when the, when the car got back up north and it was a write-off and uh, I went in kind of sheepishly to the wife saying, how's, how's the wee one? You're okay? It's all still there. Yeah, but three days later we had our daughter. But uh, yes, that, that, there endeth the racing then. But right. I do intend at some point to get back right. into it. Right. But, but slightly quieter pursuits now? In terms uh, well, no, it's now, most people are young children, it's right. letting them, hmm. yeah, see, see, uh, let them run the, yeah. run the risks and you can stand back and just take them to the racetracks. But uh, yes, it's, I do enjoy uh, spending time with the kids and where we live yeah. currently is just uh, it's on fields and open the door, off they go, go play. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure as they get older and that, I'm sure they've passed that bug of doing some crazy stuff that they'll, I'll get the phone call from the hospital that, hey, that's, that's what happens. After the main session, Ross took questions from the audience and I wanted to include this response to one question in particular which explained his attachment to the network of Maggie centres which are drop-in centres for anyone affected by cancer. I was introduced to Maggie's two, three years ago when my mum was suffering from cancer and, sorry, living with cancer is how she put it. And Maggie's in Edinburgh, which is a, a slightly different shaped centre to this one, but uh, still equally as, as, as well designed, um, allowed her to go into a place and speak with other people who are going through the same uh, issues and problems, go out for walks, and just have an area of calm that they can uh, maybe not be able to speak to their sons and daughters about, but have speak to people who are, who are in the same boat. Uh, so that's we got introduced to Maggie's through mum. She unfortunately passed away last September. And uh, myself and my dad and my sister and brother, actually all of us, we got together. We said, look, what can we do as a family? Because Maggie's helped mum in those last, uh, last year especially. And we looked at, well, we could give, we could give them some cash, quite a lot of cash. Well, that's not what we're about. So we're, what we're currently doing is putting up a project through planning in Edinburgh at the moment, where we're in Edinburgh's Maggie's, there's a, I don't know much, you know, the garden path that leaves the centre and walks down to the bottom of the garden. But there's nothing down at the bottom of the garden yet, a couple of benches. So we are proposing to build, which, as they're going through planning, a, a wee consultation room at the bottom of the garden, kind of tranquil space within the garden you can go to and relax and sit there. And yes, have a one-to-one -one with your consultant if you want, or just go there and 
have a chat with your family, invite your kids in there for a, a kind of almost a safe environment where you can hopefully get those really hard conversations that I had to have with mum done, with which I say done, but you have to have them, otherwise uh, you're left then afterwards going, well, what would she really think? Um, so that's what we are involved with at Maggie's. I think it's for our family after mum passed, has been a great source of project, my dad especially, because not only did he retire, he also had his hip redone, and mum died all the space of five months. So it was a bit of a bitch of a, <laughs> a six-month period. And him being a, a, a typical mickle bloke doesn't really communicate feelings ever. And Maggie's given, he started to actually use Maggie, you see him go down there and chat to people at the door and maybe not use as much as mum did, but just a place to, to maybe get some of his thoughts as well. So that's uh, what, what our involvement in. I think it's uh, it certainly helped, let's say, our family. And they actually brought, not, not that our family's been far apart, but on a difficult topic, being able to have a place that's uh, peaceful and, yeah. and, uh, and somewhere that we can go to afterwards and actually remember remember mum and her memory. So that's what we've, that's why I've uh, yeah, come down to see the new place here, which, well, it's not new, it's built two years now, I think, but it's, it's a fantastic facility. Ross, thanks very much. Well, thank you. Another fascinating character. Thanks for listening, and thanks very much to Maggie Centres for hosting the event. We'll be back again soon. To find out more about the Scottish Business Network, simply visit sbn.scot.